to episode number 76 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Now, Chris, this is indeed episode number 76, but with that said, it is also the first episode of the new year. Bud, how you doing? Happy New Year, everybody. And let's see if this year can be any less of a shit show than last year, or the year before that, for for that matter. Hey, man, I I, I don't know if it's getting better anytime soon. <laughs> it just seems to get worse, too, right, right when you think we've turned a corner. Yes, but uh, with that said, pal, I don't think <laughs> anything could be worse than the topic Oh, tonight's episode. This really may be the most bizarre <laughs> and disturbing case we have ever covered here at BTC. Now, Chris, I know you've heard me say that before, but don't you think I might be right this time? I actually do have to agree with you this time. <laughs> this, this is next-level shit. Tonight's story consists of two pieces, really. There's the part in which we're going to cover, and then there's kind of the aftermath, which is much more heinous than the part that we're going to cover. We will be touching on it a bit, but that's something uh, that maybe we will cover at a later date and time. But we want to focus on the initial part of the story because it is just so goddamn unnerving. Because tonight, Chris, we are going to be discussing none other than the little creep, Daniel LaPlante. So let's get started right at the beginning, Chris. Our story starts in 1970 Townsend, Massachusetts. That is when Daniel LaPlante was born. Now, from all accounts, old Danny here did not have a very good childhood. As a matter of fact, there were reports that he was not only mentally abused, not only physically abused, but also sexually abused. And to make matters even worse, this abuse apparently came at the hands of his father. So right off the bat in childhood, this kid is in a very bad spot. Well, to make matters worse from there, too, is that while Daniel, obviously, given his troubled younger life, was, of course, treated by a psychiatrist, apparently, and, and this is sick, actually, he eventually had to leave his psychiatrist because... The psychiatrist apparently made sexual advances towards him. I mean, can you imagine that? You're going to a psychiatrist to try to find some kind of remedy to deal with the abuse that your own father had dished out on you. You're going for help, and, and maybe you're building up a little bit of a relationship and trust with this psychiatrist that's supposed to be a trusted medical professional, and the same thing ends up happening. So Daniel must be in a place where he truly feels like he cannot trust anybody, especially adults. And, of course, now you have somebody who already had a troubled past. This is just basically creating a monster. Oh, absolutely. Those uh, early life experiences really mold your future personality. And, obviously, these are abuses that no one should ever experience. Just absolutely terrible. But uh, as you had alluded to, Chris, as time went on, Daniel's behaviors, you know, they, they started to get increasingly more bizarre. And due to the continuous abuse that took place throughout his early childhood, 
it led into some really troubling behaviors in his early teen years. Chris, uh, what was Danny getting himself into as a teenager? So obviously, as you can imagine, things for him were a bit out of the ordinary, and then eventually so was his teenage life as he began kind of becoming a small-time thief. He would spend most of his evenings breaking into properties uh, in the Townsend area, and you know he would steal things, but then he would also do like I guess these bizarre things that almost I guess became like a trademark of his where he would displace things in the home so that it was clear that that someone had obviously been there but you know we got to keep in mind too we got to take a lot of these stories with a grain of salt because it's been noted that uh there's been a lot of embellishments through the years in this story and you're going to come to see why because what this little creep does next is truly and I mean truly terrifying. So scary that you could see how the story could get a little more grandiose as uh, it's told over and over again and as the years roll on. We are setting the stage here for the creepiest case that we've ever covered. In 1986, at the age of 15 or 16, Danny LaPlante comes across a girl that he gains interest in. And this girl's name is Annie Andrews. He somehow, which is unknown how, obtains her telephone number and gives her a call. Now, I I believe from what I've heard that they did not go to the same high school, and neither were they neighbors, right? He just kind of saw her around town. I'm not exactly sure where he witnessed Annie or, or became interested in her, but there is a possibility that their home was perhaps maybe one of the homes that he entered at some point. But this would be unbeknownst to the family. And this sort of, you know, obsession with Annie basically has Danny LaPlante giving her phone calls and trying to get to know her better. So, you know, that's an interesting theory, Chris, that there was the possibility that he broke into their residence and kind of shuffled around their uh, belongings to essentially get their phone number and to uh, learn a little more about Annie because we're going to come to find out that old Danny here seemed to know the ins and outs of the Andrews home fairly well. So anyway, Danny gets this phone number, right? And uh, he makes the first call, which is kind of odd, you know, like when you don't know someone and you call them out of the blue and kind of trying to hook up with them or ask them out on a date. So anyway, Annie entertains him for a little bit, and she's talking to him. And, you know, they're going back and forth on the phone for a number of weeks until uh, she decided that, okay, I'll meet up with you. Now, here's the weird thing. <laughs> the Danny that she meets up with is not <laughs> the Danny that was being described to her on uh, the phone. Because it seems this uh, little runt was uh, describing himself as... A very good-looking, athletic, blonde kid. Now, Chris, call me crazy, but that description doesn't seem to match up with the pictures that we've seen of Danny LaPlante. Would you say I'm right? I'd say Danny's uh, playing a little game of catfish here. (laughs) Because when we see Danny, and, you know, if you just do a quick Google search, you'll see that we got some greasy-looking little troll. And he is nothing, and I mean nothing, like what he described. Basically, Chris, this is the precursor to modern-day 
Instagram filters. But here's the worst part. When you are usually meeting up with somebody on a date, I mean, given their age, it's, it's a little different, but you're meeting up with somebody, you've not seen their profile pic, you know, so to speak. We're talking about the 80s here. So you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. But when someone tells you they look a certain way and then they arrive at your doorstep and they look nothing like that, <laughs> I, do you just slam the door in their face? I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe you're a little bit polite, but it's like, you know, you got to get going. But it's like, 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 like I said, man, it's like what you see on social media today, you know, with all these filters and everything else. I mean, I was looking at one the other day and, and the girl looked like she didn't even have a fucking nose. That's how many filters were, were used on the thing. Like it just completely smooths the face out and they look nothing like they do in real life. Any features that somebody doesn't want is easily removed these days. <laughs> yes. And then uh, if you do decide to meet up, you could be in for a little bit of a surprise. And that's exactly what happened to Annie Andrews. There's obviously a sense of disappointment. She was expecting <laughs> this good-looking athlete, and instead she got some sniveling little worm. But it also had to be extremely creepy and bizarre, right, to have this kid who was calling you out of the blue and selling you false goods. And remember, Chris, as you said, this is in the mid-80s, so there's no cell phone, there's no way to get in touch with anybody just in case something went wrong. And we're going to find out that Danny, oh, Danny, was capable of doing very bad things. Outside of this, he's kind of known as a creepy and weird kid at school. Now, from what we gather, that they perhaps don't go to the same school, so, of course... Annie's not familiar with what Daniel looks like, obviously, because his description of himself clearly doesn't match that. But this... I'm sorry, Chris. I must announce that our BTC mascot, Duke, the Bernice Mountain Dog, is howling because the fire trucks are going off behind uh, the BTC RF. And I'm not editing it out because... Uh, People seem to like his howling and the fact that he's been irritating me the last few episodes. So uh, I do apologize to everybody, but uh, that's Duke for you. Continue, Chris. Sounds like a wolf. Yeah, he, he is right outside the BTCRF. <laughs> now, where were we? Well, ba ba back to this little creep, Danny LaPlante. Well, basically what I'm trying to say here is that this kid has a reputation already outside that, of course, Annie doesn't know of, of being a creepy and weird kid. And we can obviously understand why, because of how his early childhood has went. But nonetheless, Annie is completely unaware of this. So she meets up with him and he comes to her doorstep, whether or not he knew exactly where she lived because she gave him the address or because he had been there before. We don't know. But... They do end up going on a date, and Danny takes Annie to the local fair. And, well, that's what I was saying before, Chris. That is, you know, you get into a situation where you feel like you almost have to be somewhat polite, but, you know, fuck that. I would tell my daughter there is no way that you have to put your safety in jeopardy to be polite to uh, someone, especially a creep like this. Now that I think about this, how weird is it that he described himself in a way that was essentially the complete opposite of who he really was. So what did he think was going to happen when he came knocking at the door? Here's the thing, and, th and I believe this is what most people do. That whole description was literally just to gain her interest for a meeting. 
And, and clearly, he's not thinking about next steps after that, because obviously when she encounters him and sees that he's not, not even close to what he said he was, I mean, that's got to make you feel a little awkward in itself. Being uh, polite, though, Annie does actually go to the fair with Daniel, and it doesn't really last very long. I think it's just over an hour that they're here, because Annie, I think, starts to either feel uncomfortable or is just not enjoying herself, so she kind of starts making excuses. It, it's also during this date, though, that Annie um, shares the news of her mother passing recently due to cancer. And so Daniel actually takes really great interest in this. And, and it kind of, to a level where it's a little inappropriate, he, he starts asking a ton of questions about, you know, how Annie felt at the moment that she died and how much she, she suffered. I mean, questions that a normal person wouldn't ask. I think the reason why he was so interested in finding out how much the that Annie was suffered from her mother's death was because he kind of wanted to enjoy it in a sick way. I think at this point Annie is just ready to say goodbye to Daniel. So the date ends. <laughs> and can you blame her? Not at all, and I'm sure she is relieved for that to have ended, but the only problem is here is that while Annie probably rather care not to encounter Daniel again, it's quite the opposite on the other end. Because Daniel has the intention of seeing Annie again and again. <laughs> and again. You can say that again. <laughs> Boy, does he ever. Things go from weird to batshit crazy, right? So as we said, Chris, you know, Annie had recently lost her mother. And now she was living in her home with her father, Brian Andrews, and her sister, Jessica Andrews. The girls were obviously still mourning their mother's passing to a very severe degree. So what the girls wanted to do was find a way to kind of keep hope alive that their mother's spirit is with them, in a way. You know, they know that she can't be there physically, but they're hoping that there's at least a spiritual presence of her within the house. So... With that, you know, and the girls being teenagers, what they decide to do is hold a seance when they're home alone one night, and uh, they make a couple of uh, questionable decisions here, Chris. Not so much the seance, but they decide to actually go down into the basement to hold this seance. Now, I don't know what the reasoning was behind that, but it, it definitely adds to the fucking creep factor, I'll tell you that. While, while knowing deep down that it's kind of somewhat of a naive thing to try to summon their mother. They kind of do it in a way to kind of give themselves some time to get really give a lot of thought about her and, and, you know, at least feel somewhat in touch with her, even though they know pretty much that nothing's going to come of it. And we don't want to downplay. These girls were, were absolutely devastated because they did have a very close relationship with their mother. That is definitely what leads them to go to this step. And, and I'm sure, of course, with their father not being home was intentional because they didn't want their father to think that they were being crazy. So they perform this while he's away. So the girls, after performing the seance, uh, they come up from the basement and they both go to bed. Now, they both sleep in separate rooms, so they're not sharing a room together. So what ends up happening is they hear this knocking against the walls in the bedroom. And of course, the first thing that comes into their mind is that they had just performed that seance. Now they're thinking, wow, I mean, we really were not expecting anything, but this must be 
something related to the seance we did. This, this has got to be mom. So it kind of gets their spirits up and they think that their mother is in their presence. And so they start asking this spirit or whatever is happening around them questions. I mean, how could you not? I mean, if you're performing these seances and you, you know, you have a little bit of a belief that there could be something to them. And then that night you get almost immediate results, right? You're hearing these bizarre noises that's knocking throughout the house. So of course these girls are going to believe that there is really something spiritual going on here. And, and the crazy thing is too, is when they're asking the questions, there's a knock in reply. It's timed so that the, the knocks are coming after their questions. So now even they think at that age that it's crazy for seances, you know, to even work. But now at this point, they're convinced that it has. So of course, they're going to tell their father, but the father really doesn't believe them. And he kind of dismisses it basically saying, I know you're struggling emotionally with this. If you need to see somebody, like, we'll, we'll go see somebody. This is not the way you should act. Let's talk about it. So he doesn't believe them at all. So this wasn't a one-time thing. You know, the, the knocking persisted for days on end. It got to the point where it was actually disrupting the girl's sleep. So I can imagine that at this point, it's going from a sense of comfort, perhaps, to now a sense of uneasiness. Because, you know, you're asking questions, you get a, a response to knocking. Now, all of a sudden, you have this disruptive knocking when you're not asking questions, when you're not performing a seance, and when you're just trying to go to sleep. And to make matters worse, in addition to the knocking, Chris, the girls started to notice that things were moving around the house as if they were either moving by themselves or someone or something was doing the moving. They're starting to believe that maybe this is not their mother, but maybe their seance perhaps unlocked some other sort of a spirit, and hopefully not some sort of a demon. Get Zach Baggins on the phone. Oh, God, I'm, I'm surprised this fucker hasn't tried to capitalize on this yet. <laughs> Give him time, Chris. They've gone past the point where the excitement of, of their first night of doing this may have brought their, their, you know, their mother mother's presence again. And now they're starting to think maybe this was a mistake. Perhaps we maybe unlocked something that we shouldn't have because now it's kind of toying with us. And they know their mother would never do something like that to them. Things kind of tick up a little bit because while the knocking was being heard, you know, against the walls in their rooms, one evening in January, the, the sound starts coming from the basement. With this change of pace, they want to decide to, you know, investigate it and check it out. And so they start to head downstairs. And this is when things go from creepy to horrifying. These girls are a lot braver than me because there is no chance in hell, not even at gunpoint, if I heard a noise or something in that basement, that I am going to go down there and check it out. Especially given the, the situation that they, they've performed a seance and these things have been happening ever since. I would totally believe, too, if I were them. Even as an adult, I don't care what age you are. I would believe that I might have set something in motion. And, and I'm not going to find out what the hell it is, either. Now, when heading down to the basement, they're about to find a, a different kind of a sign. Not knocking. This time written in what appears to be blood is the words I am in your room. Come and find me. They immediately run out of the house and go to their neighbor. At this point, they basically are waiting for their father to return home and, and when he does, 
they spill everything, you know, what's been going on, and we can't believe this, but if you look on the wall, there's words written, but the father still thinks that this is the girls doing it, and he's dismissing everything they're saying. So now you can imagine how frustrating it is for them. They try to bring their mother's presence. They start hearing knocking. They're telling their dad about it. He doesn't believe them, and now they see this sign written on the wall. He still doesn't believe them, so what are they to think? Why, I wouldn't even go to sleep anymore. Uh, seriously, and, and think of how helpless they must have felt, right? And, and you can't blame the dad. I mean, he's grieving the loss of his wife. You know, he's got to continue working to support the family. You know, he's worried about his daughters. And if you don't believe in any of this stuff, you're, you're going to think that they're losing their minds. So you can't really fault uh, the dad for the way he's looking at this. No, no, I, I would probably think the same thing. I mean, you're you're thinking that your daughters are just having a very hard time coping with this, and he does send them to counseling, I believe. So what ends up happening is things kind of stop for a while. And, of course, the father now, after having this this talk with them, saying, you got to stop this, you guys are going to go seek therapy, and the fact that things stop when that happens, it probably makes them look guilty. That's a great point, Chris. I bet you're absolutely right. Now it's several weeks later, and again, the knocking starts in Annie's bedroom wall. You have to imagine that this brings absolute horror to the girls again, because they thought they were done with this. They actually enter Annie's bedroom, and and upon entering, there again, written on the wall, this time it says, I am back. Find me if you can. This is like some red rum shit. You know what I mean? Like... This is a horror movie, but it's actually happening to this family, but only to the girls, really, because the father, Brian, has nothing, you know, he has no knowledge that this is not the girls. He thinks this is the girls. It's the same story that he has been blaming Anna and Jessica, and so he does not believe that this writing is anything but them. So, again, the girls go to the neighbor's house, and and he's calling them from the neighbors, and, and he goes straight home basically says, look, he's trying to prove that there's no one else there, except this time when Brian enters the house, he notices that things are a little different than just writing on the wall. There is a lot of things that are displaced. I think in some places it actually looks like like a tornado hit. Like it was just like ripped apart. But nonetheless, that's what the dad walks into. And he knows that his girls would not destroy the house like that. So now he's like, oh, shit, man. This is real. The girls have been telling me the truth the whole time. So the dad starts searching throughout the house. He's going all over the place and trying to find who or what this is, right? So he makes his way upstairs into Annie's room. As he enters the room, he sees another message, what appears to be written in blood. And this time, it says... Marry me. But Chris, that is not the only clue that is in the room. The dad, Brian, looks over into the corner and he sees a guy standing there in his dead wife's wedding dress wearing makeup and a fucking wig. And not only that, he has a hatchet in his hand. I'm getting terrified just saying this, Chris. I can't even imagine what must be going through the dad's head. I, I, don't, I barely have anything to say because it's that disturbing. So now this situation is out of control. Brian, the dad, is there and he attempts to go after this kid. But the kid bolts past him and basically disappears. They said that he ran out of the room, 
rounded a corner and was gone. The dad searched everywhere. They could not find him. They call the police. The police get there. They have the house surrounded. They're looking all through it. They find nothing. There is no one to be found. But obviously the police believe this because now it's coming from the dad. And the two girls are giving their eyewitness accounts too. But where did this kid go? The police obviously believe that he must have went out the back door and escaped, made his way through the woods, and was gone. Chris? That freak was none other than the kid that we talked about earlier on in the show, Danny LaPlante, the kid who had become obsessed with Annie Andrews. So we come to find out what this kid ended up doing was that he broke into their home, and while he was there by himself, he created this entire tunnel system behind their wall. So basically, he maybe even cut out a piece of drywall or you know, there was an opening in uh, the, one of the walls in the basement and he created a way to navigate himself around the entire house behind the walls, dude, without being seen. And from every location in the house, he had made these little uh, peepholes. Like, they must have been fairly small where it was kind of unnoticeable to the family. But that was his way of being able to not only hear everything that the family was saying, but to see everything that they were doing. So when those girls did that seance that night, Danny was there watching them, and he heard everything that they were saying. And at that point, he made his way around the house and began knocking, and from there, he started his reign of terror. The fact that this kid is able to make tunnels through the insulation and the walls and have essentially a spy hole in each room being able to see their every move and he was there for months he learned all this information about the mother because he'd been living in the walls i mean he began to terrorize these two girls i, I mean the, the father was completely unaware of the situation uh, aside from the fact that the girls were telling him which he dismissed as you know just being them these two girls were just absolutely terrorized the, the father now at least has to be like, oh my God, this entire time, not only have I thought my daughters were lying to me and making this all up, I sent them to therapy, but this kid's been living in my walls. And now I find him with my wife's clothes on with a hatchet in his hand. Clearly, there was must be some intent for harm here, because why would the kid have a hatchet? And while none of the things that he was doing before seemed as if there were any signs that, that anything violent was going to happen, now you got to be concerned, because they can't find the kid, and the last thing you saw him, he had a, a hatchet. There were no signs of this little creep, but even so, the police said, you know, you guys should not stay here, just in case, you know, they don't know what this kid is capable of. And mind you, the dad doesn't know who the hell this guy is because he was wearing a wig, he had a dress on, and he probably didn't know Danny LaPlante from a hole in the wall. And then Annie hardly knew this kid, and he never even revealed himself to the girls. So her going out on that initial date with him might have just completely been something in passing that she didn't even think about. You know, so this little creep played this thing like an absolute pro. And, I, you know, it makes you think, but how many times must he have done this in the past? With that said... The dad and the two daughters, they stay away from their home in Townsend for a few weeks. And during that time, all is quiet. The police are outside. They're surveilling the area. They don't see anybody coming or going, right? There's nothing going on. So one night, Brian decides to take a trip home. 
yet again, an unfathomable event takes place. As Brian is pulling into the driveway, he notices that there was a light on upstairs, a light that was off when they left, and he knows that nobody has entered the home because the police were there surveilling it. He looks up in the window. He sees Daniel LaPlante walk past the window with the same wedding gown and wig on. This fucking kid has been hiding in their house the entire time. He never left. So the question then becomes, where did he go when he initially ran out of the room with that hatchet the first time that Brian saw him? Where could he have gone? Remember, the police thought that this kid must have bolted out the door and ran into the woods. But that was not the case, Chris. This kid was hiding in that house. Obviously, at this point, I'd imagine that Brian gets the, the police back over there to search the place. They have to find where this kid is. I mean, clearly, he's either left and come back if he has, and the police were unaware of it. They, they did not see anybody entering the house. So, so where is he? Now they have to find him. So we're back to square one. The police come into the house. They're looking around. There's nothing. Or is there? Chris... What did the fine police officers of Townsend, Massachusetts find that caught their eye? So apparently, upon investigation, the police discover there was a hidden crawl space behind a cupboard. And it was built right into the wall. And this must have been the way that Danny was able to escape the search of Brian and the police at the day of that incident, that encounter that Brian had with him. Upon opening up the hatch, there was Danny LaPlante curled up. They basically now have discovered that this kid never left, and this was his hiding spot. And get this, Chris, within the walls, they found all kinds of food and alcohol, changes of clothing and whatnot. So this kid, for all intents and purposes, moved into the Andrews home soon after he was rejected by Annie. Due to this rejection, he wreaked absolute havoc on this family. So upon his capture, Danny was placed into a juvenile delinquent facility where he stayed for, I see different accounts, but it looks like for almost up to a year. So you can imagine how the Andrews family must feel knowing that this little uh, demon has been released. Let's remember that this kid is 15 or 16 years old. This is a kid that's been doing this the whole time. So he doesn't get some crazy, you know, sentence to go to prison. He goes to juvenile facility, and, and it's a year, and that's it. Slap on the hand, and you're out. He should have been taken to a psychiatric facility and been placed there for a very long time, at least until they can decipher what the hell is going on in his demented head. So anyway, Danny's released, and upon his release, he went right back to his old ways, breaking and entering, robberies, whatever. We all know that LaPlante isn't playing with a full deck here, Chris, but he was never really violent. Even though he did have the hatchet, he never actually swung at someone or attempted to um, hit them with it. And he did make the written threats on the wall, but yet he never laid a hand on anyone in the Andrews family. But that all changed on December 1st of 1987. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us what happened? So Danny LaPlante breaks into another home, and this is the home of the Gustafsons. 
upon breaking into the home, he sees Priscilla and her two young children, Abigail and William. Priscilla's pregnant. She's 33 years old. The husband isn't home. He's at work. This is just where things get extremely tragic. The, the husband ends up coming home from work, and what he finds is his wife face down in her bed. The pillows are all dyed red in blood. She had been raped and shot multiple times in the head at point-blank range. When the police arrive after the call from Andrew, the police end up discovering the additional two bodies. Both children had actually been killed by being drowned in the bathtubs. One was drowned upstairs, the other was drowned downstairs. Police show up on the scene, Danny's nowhere to be found. He takes off once again. We find out he broke into another woman's house and kidnapped her, takes her car, and he's on the run yet again. At this point, Chris, a huge manhunt begins because the police had put two and two together and they believe that Danny LaPlante is the man, or in this case, teenager, that is responsible for this triple murder. And Chris, they were spot on. Fortunately enough, LaPlante's reign of terror came to an abrupt end 48 hours after the manhunt began. And get this, Chris, this is a little bit of poetic justice. They found that little piece of garbage, Danny LaPlante, hiding in a dumpster. And pinning him to the murder, they actually found a hair belonging to Abigail Gustafson on his sock. I mean, that, that's all they needed to, to bury him. And Danny ends up receiving three life sentences for murder. But if you want to just kind of think back here a little bit, so... He had broken into a home after he'd gotten out, which is, which is where he actually stole two guns, which he ends up using in the Gustafson home. But let's think about the Andrews family and how fortunate they are to not have been killed by this kid because he may have had a hatchet on him, but who's to say what his, you know, what his plan next was? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, his intention at the end, dressing up as the mom and having the hatchet in his hand, must have been, at least from my standpoint, to kill those two girls that night. And you, you could just see through the pattern of how he was doing it, right? So it started out as knocking, knocking, knocking. Then he put up writing. He was getting ready to, to reveal himself. He was putting the words on the wall, the marry me thing. I mean, he was getting closer and closer to revealing who he was. And then when the dad finds him with a hatchet, that says it for me. He was, you're right, he was ready to kill. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you said, he was sentenced to three consecutive life terms. But get this, Chris, I'm reading this. It, it says that, you know, there's a lot of uh, debate here due to the fact that Danny was a juvenile at the time of the murders. So there's some believe that maybe he should have a second chance at life and Maybe he should be given the possibility for parole down the road. And to that, I say, F no. You know, if this kid's 16 or 17 years old, he can conceivably get out of jail at the age of 60, 61, and still live another 20 to 25 years of his life. Who knows? I think you have to have extremely good behavior, and you have to really convince people that you're ready for society. I doubt he's ever going to convince them of that. 
and I, I think we should also mention that he showed no sign of remorse. And at some points, it was noted that he was actually laughing during the trial. If that's not grounds for carrying out the life terms, I don't know what is. Because I have no doubt in my mind that if this kid, now man, were to get out, he would definitely be back to his old ways. So that's it, Chris. That is the case of Daniel LaPlante. Oh, and before we go, Chris, I should mention the three sources that we used. The main one being an article by my man and your twin, Joe Turner. And this guy wrote an article called The Bizarre Story of Daniel LaPlante. And that's where I got most of the info from. And also, we used an article from Ranker.com. And that was entitled, A Teen Terrorized a Family While Living in Their Walls. And it sounds like a real-life horror movie by Laura Allen. And Laura, you are absolutely right. This shit was a real-life horror movie. And uh, Chris, last but not least, we used a little bit of Wikipedia. What the hell can I tell you? So uh, with all that said, Chris, why don't we give the rundown? If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook at the Between the Cracks Podcast or on Instagram at the Between the Cracks Podcast. If you would love to become one of our lovely patrons, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes. If uh, for some unknown reason you want some BTC merch, please feel free to click on the link in the show notes to that as well. And now, with all that said, why don't you say we wish to find, find people out in podcast land the fondest? Oh, a farewells. May, may. Sweet fucking Maria. <laughs> I just hope that the audio throughout the whole thing is fine because there's a lot of breaks. Yeah, I will. Luckily, we